All right, good morning. <laughs> so, I, uh, some of you I'm sure can relate to this. I, my house was built in like the 1890s or so. And uh, so I have, an, I have an older home, and um, you can tell whoever built my home had money. And then the people who worked on it a little bit later had a little less money. <laughs> and the people who worked on the next thing had a little less money. And uh, so, that, you know, there's, there's some really nice stuff and some cobbled stuff. And so we're all... We, We've been in a constant state of construction since we've moved into that house, it seems like. Uh, also, I come from the school of the mechanically declined, so, uh, so I've had to call in a bunch of favors. And also, YouTube has, has been, my, been my friend, right? I've learned a lot of stuff from YouTube. However, uh, there's been a few times where, you know, I've ran into something. I had, had something here recently that... I'm like, man, I'm probably going to need a contractor. I bet there's an easy way. I bet there's an easy way to fix this. And so I watched some YouTube videos. And there was one video in particular that was like, okay, cool. This, this guy had an easy solution. And then at the end of the video, it clicked over to his next video where he said, yeah, my last video didn't work. <laughs> and, and, it, and I'm like, oh, dang it. It's <laughs> And so then I end up having to call a contractor. But sometimes, you know, what we, what we want to hear versus what we need to hear are, are, two, are two different things. And unfortunately, that means I'm going to be spending more money. But anyway, so we're going we're to be talking about some of those same kind of things today. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 12. We're actually going to read a few verses in chapter 11 first. But before we do, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to help us understand this stuff. Jesus, we thank you so much for giving us this opportunity uh, to gather together today to be able to fellowship and worship uh, in person and online. And, uh, and Lord, we, as we prepare to study your word, uh, we just we know we've uh, we've we've sinned since we've last spoken to you. We've listened to the wrong voices over yours, and uh, Lord, we just pray that you would cleanse us. Make our hearts ready to receive your word, and that, Lord, that we can leave here uh, knowing you better than we did when we arrived, and Lord, that we would be not so hardened that, uh, that we're unwilling to change in light of inconvenient truth when it's put in our face. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be tran transformed by your word. We pray for your will to be done through the message. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, uh, we, like I said, we're going to be, we're still in 1 Kings. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 11 and 12, and, and these chapters are sort of the beginning of the end as far as uh, the heyday of, of Israel. You know, after Solomon dies, uh, things begin to go downhill pretty quickly. And we saw last week that God had told Solomon that because you have not kept my word, I'm going to take your kingdom and I'm going to give it to your servant, and, but I'll give part of it to your son. And in the verses that follow, we see that two different enemies arise against Solomon. And up until this point, his kingdom, has, his reign has been pretty peaceful. 
right? He's just had nothing but blessing and wealth and, and fame, uh, and it's just grown and grown. And then once, once the blessing, the, the, the hedge of protection is kind of removed from him, some enemies rise up against him. And then we're intergu- introduced to this guy, Jeroboam. Now, there's going to be two very similar names in our text today. There's Jeroboam and Rehoboam. These are not like the Boehm brothers, Jerry and Ray, right? These are they're two different guys. And so we're introduced to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11, verse 28. It says, now, the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So Solomon has been in basically constant construction mode during his reign as king, right? He built a temple. He built a house for himself that took twice as long to build as the temple. Uh, and he's built all these different things. And with all his wealth, he was still kind of a, a bit of a cheapskate. And uh, I can relate to that. But, uh, and he had, began, uh, he had begun to have forced labor, basically slaves, right? Uh, I have kids for that. That's, that's my forced labor. And so uh, he, he, he sees uh, this guy rising up through the ranks in his military, and he puts him in charge of this, this forced labor, makes him kind of a supervisor. And once Jeroboam is put in charge of these people, he begins to feel a little, a little disgruntled toward his king because, you know, forced labor was never God's will for, for Israel. That, you know, they were set free from being slaves in Egypt. They were never supposed to be slaves again, especially not in their own land. And so over time, he, he begins to, you know, d- mistrust his king and, and has some problems with him. And eventually, God sends a prophet to him. In 1 Kings 11, verse 29, it says, It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now, Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. And then he goes on to specify, Look, you'll get, uh, you'll get ten out of the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, and if you're faithful... You can reign over all of Israel except for Jerusalem. I'm going to hold that city because that's God's city, and I promised that to David's people. And so uh, Rehoboam will will reign there over two tribes. Uh, But if you'll be faithful to me, you'll have the other ten. And and basically he's he's promised more than any other king was apart from David. He's he's promised basically 80% of what David had been promised. And that's a pretty sweet deal. Now Solomon gets wind of, of this and, and tries to have Jeroboam killed, so he flees to Egypt uh, until Solomon's death. So 1 Kings 11, verse 42, it says, Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. So if you, if you do the math, Solomon didn't even make it to 60 years old. He was a teen when he became king. Um, now we get into chapter 12. 1 Kings 12, verse 1. It says, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem 
For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now Shechem, this is a, a city that's kind of right, right around the middle of Israel. And uh, it, it had a really rich history. Abraham and Jacob had both worshipped there and built altars and things. Joseph was, is buried there. Uh, but like I said, more importantly, it's, it's kind of the geographical center of the country. So there's, there's already kind of a sign of the changing of times, right? Jerusalem is the capital. It is God's city. That's where the enthroning of a new king should happen. But Rehoboam has to go to where the people are uh, because they're not really on his side. They should have come to Jerusalem. Uh, but he's, there's already some signs that they're not really on board with him being the king. Verse 2, it says, Now, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father in his heavy yoke which he has put on us, and we will serve you. Now remember, a prophet has already told Jeroboam, hey, you can be king over 80% of the kingdom. But when Solomon dies, he goes to meet with Rehoboam and doesn't, doesn't try to seize that power. Instead, he, he approaches Rehoboam kind of like a, a, sort of like a union boss, right? He's representing the people, and he says, hey, uh, you know, if Solomon made our lives really hard, he taxed us really hard, he worked us really hard. If you'll just lighten our workload and, and lighten our tax burden, we will serve you. Verse 5, then he said to them, Rehoboam, depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. Right, this is maybe the wisest thing Rehoboam ever does in his life, is he doesn't make a snap decision. Now, it doesn't work out good, but he, he doesn't make a snap decision because, you know, decisions that you are pressured into, you know, when you get that, that business deal that you have to act now, right now, it's the, or you're going to miss out on the deal of a lifetime, probably just miss out on that one. You know, those decisions you're pressured into, they rarely work out and your benefit. So he says, you know what, I need some time to think, I need, I need to get some counsel. Uh, and so 1 Kings 12, verse 6, it says, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon uh, while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these people? Right, this is a good idea. These, these old gray beards who served his father well, they've seen a lot of stuff, they spent a long time serving next to the wisest king Israel had ever had. Uh, and so he, he goes to them, and they give him good, godly advice. Verse 7, it says, Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them, and grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Right, this is great advice. And it's not the thing, you, those are words you don't normally associate with being a king or a leader. Right? If you will serve them, 
then they will serve you. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus talks about how godly leadership versus how most of the world does things, uh, the, the difference between the two. And he says in verse 42, he says, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And here's the big thing. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. See, his disciples have been arguing about who would be the greatest in his kingdom, who would get to sit on his right and his left. And he's like, guys, you are getting this all wrong. Even I... King of all creation came to serve, not be served. And I came to put others ahead of myself. I came to put my preferences aside, even when it's inconvenient. Even to the point of death. Because that's that's how you really care for and lead people. Because a a good leader is first and foremost a servant. A good leader seeks to lighten your load. Remember, these, these, uh, these elders advise Rehoboam, hey, maybe you should lighten their yoke. That's what they're asking for, not add to it. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anybody in here tired, carrying around too much weight? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So these elders, they gave Rehoboam great advice. This this is the same thing that Jesus is saying in the New Testament. We'll go back and look at it again. 1 Kings 12, verse 7. So they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to this people today, you will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them. Then they will be your servants forever. They, they're not saying, you know, and if you tell them what they want to hear. No, that's not, that's not what that means. They're saying, if you speak truth, if you communicate that you want to improve their situation, and then you follow through with it, if you do what you say you will do, there's a novel idea for a politician, right? If you do what you say you will do, these people will serve you. You know, Paul gives us the same advice in the New Testament. He tells, uh, he tells husbands to, you know, love your wife, serve your spouse. Right? I've, it's funny, young husbands, it's only young husbands that ask this, they'll, they'll ask, how do I get my wife to submit? How do I make my wife submit to me? And I'm like, that's not how that works. You know? <laughs> Submission is to voluntarily carry a burden. You don't make someone volunteer. Uh, but if you will serve your spouse, if you'll love your spouse, if you'll build up your children rather than provoking them to anger, if you'll speak the truth in love, that's how you lead. That's not... Not by force, you lead by serving. Now, Rehoboam, 
is not the wisest guy in the world. And he's grown up probably the most spoiled kid in history, right? His dad was the wealthiest man in history. I have a feeling Rehoboam pretty much always got what he wanted for his birthday, right? He's used to getting his way. And suddenly they're telling him to serve people. So 1 Kings 12, verse 8 says, But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. He didn't like the advice he got, so he goes somewhere else. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? <laughs> the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. That means pretty much what you think it means. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I'll discipline you with scorpions. This is classic young guy, dude bro advice. right? I remember one time sitting around with a group of people and Somebody was having some problems at home, and this one guy speaks up, and he's like, well, you just tell her, woman, you're going to, you know, make, make sure dinner's on the table when I get home, and blah, 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 and I'm, you know, and I'm like, how many times have you been divorced? Four, why? And I'm like, <laughs> careful where you get your counsel, right? These young guys are like, no, you talk tough to them. Now, notice, though. Who has he not sought counsel from yet? He has not talked to God about this. He wanted someone to tell him what he had already decided in his heart to do. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, we find out God is fully aware of this situation. Here's what he says about Rehoboam. Uh, 2 Chronicles 12 verse 14, it says, He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Right? He sought out counsel to tell him what he already wanted to hear. Just like I seek out YouTube videos to tell me, how do I fix this thing for $399 rather than the $1,200 the contractor said? <laughs> it's a sore subject. All right. We'll go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. See how this counsel works out for him. It says, uh, verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Okay, so the people are like, Look, we're done with your whole family line. Now, what happens next, to me, just seems like it's straight out of a Monty Python movie. Because Rehoboam, he's already kind of playing an away game, right? He had to leave his palace in Jerusalem to go here to try to get everybody, you know, to, to make him king. And the crowd has just turned on him. Now, remember, Solomon had put Jeroboam in charge of all the forced labor, and then he 
things didn't go well, and he ran him out of town. So another guy has been put in charge of the forced labor in the meantime. His name is Adoram. And Adoram has been the, the boss of the forced labor all since then. And so Rehoboam turns to this guy, and he's like, hey, get all your employees in line, right? They're being mean to me. Make them stop. And so uh, he sends them out. We'll, we'll look here. Verse 18. It says, Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. That went well. <laughs> and King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. Yeah, he, he gets out of Dodge in a hurry. And so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So the beginning of Rehoboam's reign starts with 80% of his people basically seceding from the union, and they make Jeroboam their king. Now Rehoboam, he, he tries to rally uh, the two tribes that he does have control over. Right? This is uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin. And he's, he's actually going to go force the other ten tribes to serve him. Remember that whole, how do I make my wife? Right? He's going to go make them love him. That's not how that works. But he, he, he tries to, basically he's going to start a civil war. And another prophet comes and convinces him, hey, that's a really bad idea. And it sort of fizzles out. And so they avoid a, a bloody civil war. But this nation, is, it never recovers. Because now you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. You have the northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria. That, that name may sound familiar to you. And then you have a southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Rehoboam is at. So Rehoboam, he's a disaster right away, right? His first day as king, he loses 80% of his kingdom. Uh, so Jeroboam, obviously, is going to do better, right? Yeah. 1 Kings 12, verse 25. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, right, anytime it talks about someone saying something in their heart, it almost never goes well. He said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So pretty quickly, Jeroboam is doubting what God told him through the prophet Ahijah. Right? A prophet already told him, hey, if you'll be faithful... You'll have ten of, ten of the twelve tribes. And pretty quickly, he gets full of anxiety and insecurity and fear. And what he's afraid of is something God had already given him clear instruction about. But he's afraid about if the people go to Jerusalem to worship God, eventually they'll feel like, well, this is, this is really where we should be anyway. And they won't follow me anymore. They'll follow Rehoboam. Even though the people 
rebelled against Rehoboam all on their own. Even though God had already told him, be faithful, these people will serve you. You know, we make terrible decisions when we make them out of fear and insecurity. Verse 28, it says, So the king consulted, doesn't tell us with who, but they don't give him good advice, apparently. And he made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, this may sound familiar to you. In Exodus 32, Aaron built a golden calf, right? And said, Behold your God. And, and, and God was not pleased with all that. We don't have time to get into all that. But Jeroboam, he, he's like, Well, they, you know, they need to worship, but I don't want them going to Jerusalem. I'm going to make it convenient. And he builds two golden calves. He says, Behold your gods, plural who brought you up out of Egypt. That is not how the story went down, right? Verse 29, he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So he builds these basically pagan altars, and he places them at opposite ends of his kingdom. So no matter where you live, one of these is fairly close to you. One of these is more convenient to go to than Jerusalem. So it would be convenient, no matter where you lived, uh, and so they wouldn't bother going to Jerusalem. He's more interested in what's easy than in what's right. Verse 30 says, Now the thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, and he made houses on high places. We've talked about high places the last couple weeks in our sermons. And he made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. So God had ordered the way uh, the worship was to be carried out in Israel. God had ordered that the, the priests, the people who led worship, who you know, preached and sang and all that, they were, they were Levites. They were from the tribe of Levi. And, and Jeroboam says, well, that's inconvenient. I'm going to make it easier. Anybody can be a priest now. And that sounds nice, right? He's inclusive. Right? Yeah, that's, he's progressive, right? That's, that's what we call it today. But he's lowering the standards that God had set. We'll go on, verse 32. Jeroboam ins instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. See, God had created, there were just a few holy days that he, that he had instituted. There's a feast of tabernacles and Passover. and Anyway, so... So there were these certain holy days, and he says, you know what, I'm going to make another holy day. It's a, instead of the, the seventh month, it'll be in the eighth month, because that's more convenient, because it's after the harvest rather than in the middle of it. And see, this is better. And he went up to the altar, and thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made, and he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. He had made. Right? He's making... A God. He's making a religion. So he's adding to God's recipe. Now God's method of worship, we, we have to assume how God draws it up is the perfect way. right? And one step beyond perfection is not 
perfecter, right? Like in sports, they always say, I gave it 110%. That drives me insane. You can't. It's not a, it's not a thing. If you get to the, the peak of a mountain and then you take another step, <laughs> is, is it better? No, you're, you're, you're in trouble, right? You're going downhill. Verse 33, then he went up to the altar, which he had made in Bethel, on the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. So, you know, man-made religion made of convenience and compromise. That's what we've got here. The easy thing and the right thing are rarely the same thing. Right? What was easy was not what was right. And this, this may seem like a small thing. So he built a couple places for, to make it convenient, and he changed a couple things. But in 1 Kings 14, because we're not done with Jeroboam, he, he's going to be king for a couple more chapters. But in 1 Kings 14, verse 9, this is what God says about Jeroboam, summing up his life, his reign, and the decisions he made. He said, you have also done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back or have turned your back on me. That's a big statement. You have done more evil than anyone ever. Now, there's still a lot more to his life between here and that verse. But what did he do that he gets that title? That he did more evil than anybody ever. Right, he, he changed the place of worship, okay, the time of worship, and ultimately he changed the object of worship. He basically creates a new religion, and that's, he's not the first one to do that, but he, he creates a new religion, and this schism that this caused lasted for centuries. Now, I mentioned earlier, his kingdom, the northern kingdom, right now it's called Israel, but eventually it's called Samaria. And you may have heard that before. There's the story of the good Samaritan, right? But there's also another instance I want to take you to real quickly. This is about 900 years later. This is 900 or so years after what Jeroboam did here. In John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, There came a woman of Samaria... To draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This is the woman at the well. You may be familiar with this story. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So more went into the bad feelings between these two groups. There's a period where they're in captivity and a bunch of other things, but it starts here, right? This, this divide starts here. And 900 years later, it's still an issue. We'll skip down to verse 19. This is hard. I love the woman at the well. There's so much in this text, but we only have time for one sermon today. So John 4, verse 19, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Right? That's, she's referring to what Jeroboam created. Right? Our people say we can worship here with this thing that we made, and you say we're supposed to be in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is inconvenient truth, right? The way that you've been brought up, the way you've heard it taught, the way that you always believed, Jesus says, none of that matters. What matters is that you worship in spirit and in truth, whether it is convenient to you or not. There is one name under heaven by which men are saved. There is only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and that name, that one, is Jesus. And so today we live in a period where there are lots of progressive ideals, right? Lots of things that we've compromised on. And sometimes we even compromise on, well, you know, there's lots of ways to, there are lots of truths and lots of paths to God. And, and there's, you know, who's to say the Quran or the Bible or, you know, it's all truth is truth, and, and, you know, we can compromise and just get along. But that's, that's convenient, but it's not true. It's convenient to go along, to get along. It's, it's convenient to compromise, but it's, that's not where truth lies. And so we can't, we can't sacrifice truth because it's inconvenient. We can't be hateful when Jesus says that, you know, they will know that you are mine by your love. But that's convenient, right? When I'm mad, that's what, it, that's what comes out naturally, right? That's another way to put it, right? What is convenient is also what we naturally do. Right? It's my nature. It's just how I'm wired. We, and we excuse things all the time that way. Right? I, I'm just not a friendly person. It's just not how I am. Well, too bad. Learn to be. Right? I'm just, I just have a bad temper. It's just how I'm wired. Well, too bad. That's convenient for you. But the truth is that Jesus tells us that we're to, is pos if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He doesn't call us to do what comes naturally to us. He doesn't call us to do what, you know, what we want to already do, what we want to hear. He doesn't call us to, to do what comes natural to us. He calls us to lead supernatural lives, to do what is difficult, 
And when it's really difficult, then we're reminded how badly we need him. It's really difficult to not rub it in when I'm right, which is most of the time. And so I'm reminded when I remind my wife that I'm right and then that doesn't go well, I'm reminded that, wow, I need Jesus to remind me how to treat my wife and how to serve her. And we could go on and on about this, but the reality is uh, we're, we're living in strange times, difficult times, where what comes naturally to us, what is convenient for us, is in almost polar opposition to what is actually true in God's word, what God calls us to. What comes natural is to shake my fist and rail against the world because I'm angry. And Jesus calls us to be peacemakers and to love people and to put others ahead of ourselves and, and to not put our preferences ahead of others. And, you know, we can just go on and on. But we are called to lead supernatural lives, not natural lives. So the easy thing and the right thing are rarely the same thing. And so if you've been, if you don't know Jesus already, if you don't have a relationship with him, you've gotten all kinds of advice up, up until this point in your life. Advice that felt good and went along with what you wanted. And are you really where you hope to be because of that? Has it, has it, how's it working out for you? Because what Jesus tells us is that there is one way to peace, and it's through him. And he's going he's gonna to give you all sorts of advice that runs counter to what you already want to hear and what you've already devised to do. But it doesn't make it untrue. And I'll just leave it at that. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you so much that you've blessed us to be able to um, have access to your word. Um, Lord, that even when we choose the easy way and it ends up blowing up and making things more difficult, Lord, that you're still there, that nothing takes you by surprise. That you're still there waiting for us to choose you, to open our eyes and our hearts to you. So Lord, we just pray that uh, if there's anyone here or listening online that has not done so, that has not, uh, does not have a relationship with you, that they would see that you have already done all of the work. That you said if they would trust you for eternal life, you would give it. And Lord, for those of us that already know you, we just pray that, Lord, that you would... Uh, Remind us, encourage us, strengthen us through your spirit to not choose what is convenient, what is expedient, but to choose what is true. Because, Lord, we know that ultimately things that are inconvenient, things that are difficult, tend to pay off better. Lord, we, we don't want to just try to take the easy way out on things and, and miss out on what you would have for us. Lord, just remind us that uh, uh, 
that you're in this with us. We want to hear at the end that you've, we've run the race, we've fought the good fight. And hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, help us to encourage one another along the way. And we pray that you come and come quickly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ready? Great.